0: Welcome to the Clear Choices Podcast. I'm your host, Rob Eigner, and it is my unique privilege to bring you intriguing conversations with people who have made the bold choices necessary to elevate their lives and create a positive impact on the world. By hearing their stories, I hope you walk away more motivated and more inspired to do the same in your life, because we all have choices to make. My goal is to help inspire you to make more conscious and powerful choices, clear choices. Now let's get started. Hello, and welcome to episode five of Clear Choices. This is Rob Eigner, and I have an amazing guest with me once again today. Her name is Beth Abrams. She grew up here in Los Angeles, specifically in Pacific Palisades, which is gorgeous a place I like to go surfing every weekend if I can. She has led a uh, very Inspiring life. Uh, she's done things that many people would uh, love to do themselves. She went to Berkeley for undergrad. She got her law degree at the University of Michigan. Successful marriage to a very successful lawyer for now 23 years. She herself was an assistant U.S. attorney and a mother of four children. Uh, but that kind of leads us to why we're having this conversation. So before I go further, Beth. Tell us what happened. You had four children and something changed.
1: Right. Well, um, I had three children and um, they were within five years and they were great. They grew up. We sent them to a wonderful progressive private elementary school. And when my middle child, Jackson, was in second grade, he was playing baseball at our local park. And he started complaining that he couldn't see the infield when he was playing the outfield and Mm. things were blurry. Mm. And we went through a series of diagnostic tests. And in the end, after I'd say three stressful weeks, um, we received the diagnosis that he had medulloblastoma, which is a very rare form of pediatric brain cancer. And the reason that his vision was blurry was because the excess cerebral fluid was inflaming his optic nerves. Oh my. Yeah. So
0: that's, that's a, a short amount of time to get such heavy news. Uh, devastating, I'm sure for all of you, I, I guess I would start by asking actually, how did Jackson handle? it?
1: That, that's a great question. Uh, not many people ask, ask me that question. Um, You know, he handled it really well, to be honest. I mean, he was eight and a half years old. And I guess that's the age where he was old enough to have some understanding of what was happening, but probably not old enough to really understand. And we obviously didn't ever tell him that this was a life-threatening disease but just that it was a very serious disease and that in order to fight it we had to do some pretty bad things to his body I mean basically in order to fight this type of cancer and the way it manifested in Jackson um, unfortunately it didn't form a mass or a tumor that could be surgically removed mm. it was it was basically just on the lining of his brain mm. the only way to fight it was by doing a highly toxic, chemotherapy regimen. And so we had to explain to him why we were basically poisoning him to cure
0: the cancer. How how and, long did how long did that go on, Beth?
1: Um sadly, after he started his second round of cancer in um mid July, so not even 2 months after the diagnosis. He got some infection mm. and his Organs and his kidney function started shutting down on us, and he went into cardiac arrest and they couldn't revive him. So it was,
0: no. it was all of it, all of it was fast. The understanding of this heavy news, and then his willingness was there to fight, but you know, unfortunately, his body didn't allow him to fight for very long. So this was all just a, a huge, rapid change for your family. Um, it was.
1: It was. And then in terms of talking to Jackson about it, it was more about what the next steps were. You know, we were able to just explain it in short periods of times. Like first we're going to do this, then we're going to do that. Yes. It was, it was so fast and it felt so surreal that we almost felt like we were living outside of our bodies. Yeah. Right. Watching it happen to us.
0: You know, not, not to um, at all switch away from, from this poignant, conversation we're having, but it reminds me of this time when my now 16 year old fell in our driveway and hit his head and he stopped breathing. Uh And, and we called the ambulance and all that. And we gave him mouth to mouth. And by the time the ambulance got there, he had maybe gone a minute without breathing. And just in that minute, just to, to talk about your surreal, your description of this experience is so surreal. Just in that minute, I literally saw everything flash before. My eyes at, uh, at his life and our future potentially without him and all that. It was just, it was so, uh, it was so intense. Like I couldn't even feel anything. Right. It was so intense. So is is that does that kind of describe it a little bit for you?
1: That's right. It's exactly right. It is so intense you can't feel anything. And I mean, I don't want to be too shocking or startling to people, but you know, that's like the moment that he went into arrest. I don't know if it's part of your body's defense mechanism that you turn numb. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, I mean, you're not so numb that you don't know what to do and how to act. Like in your situation, you knew that you needed to try to revive him and give him mouth mouth and call 911.
0: Mm-hmm. But
1: your body lets you do those things while keeping you almost, it's like immune to the feelings that have got to be there, you know? And that's why when they hit you later, I think it's just such a shock.
0: Yeah. So, so this is, you know, this is hard to hear for any parent, or even if you're not a parent, and I'm sure it's hard for you to talk about, obviously, how long ago did Jackson pass?
1: Jackson passed a little over um, 11 years ago. It was in July of uh, 2008.
0: Got it. So obviously the pain of the loss of a child never goes away. But obviously it's also changed, you know, uh, over time. So how would you describe some of the choices you, you and your family had to start to make and uh, to adjust to this new reality?
1: So you're right. Um, grief is, is not does not have a finite endpoint, and it goes in waves, not a straight line. Um, but there's definitely a progression and, I would say that the first significant choice that our family was able to make, and I'd say in this instance, it was my husband and myself, because my other children um, were 10 and 5 when Jackson died. They were a little too young to make this decision, was that we decided to try and have another child.
0: Interesting. Um, How how quickly, how how soon after... Did you make that decision?
1: So Jackson passed away in July and July 21st. And I would say my husband and I were sitting on our couch. We did a lot the first (laughs) few months after we lost Jackson and the kids were at school and we just started talking. We did a lot of crying and a lot of talking. Mm Mm-hmm. And I turned to him and I said, do you ever think about having another child? I know this might just sound absolutely insane. I was 43. He was 46. We were not of the age where that would be a normal thing to think about. And he turned to me and he said, yes, I do. And we just looked at each other and we just knew at that moment that, that was the right choice for us. It was, it was like, imagine living in a fog so deep, you can barely, you can barely move. And having both of us have us that same level of clarity about a decision. Mm-hmm. And that's what happened.
0: You know, I I often on on this podcast, ask people, you know, how much of your decision making is, systematic and logical versus intuitive? What role does intuition play? This sounds like it was a fully feeling emotion based and intuitive kind of thing to get you towards healing
1: there. That's right. We, we both had separately identified this crazy idea, right. (laughs) As a way forward for our entire family. And no one had suggested it to us. We hadn't. I don't know why it came into both of our minds. And I think a lot of decision making is that way. If you go back to the like very, very critical decisions in your life, sometimes you have no idea how the idea came to you, right? You just know in retrospect that it was the right idea. And you know we were terrified. We were terrified of moving forward in this way, because we were setting ourselves up for a lot of emotional heartbreak. And we were setting ourselves up in a situation where we really couldn't handle the heartbreak that we had.
0: Right? So- and, and and did did that decision to have, you know, three kids or, you know, a fourth child in your life, uh, did that make you guys feel better right away? Did it, did it change? Did it give you something to look forward to? Or like, I don't know how to just, I don't know how to ask the question, I guess.
1: I, I understand exactly what you're asking. And I think it did because it gave us something to work together towards. And I, I joke, and then and this to anyone that's had a serious loss or illness, like I joke that, you know, once we had a path forward and, and my doctor was saying, well, okay, you need to be, you need to go and you need to have sex on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. I joke that, you know, I don't know when we would have started having sex again as a married mm. couple. So it helped our marriage too, right? Sure. Because that's the last thing you feel like doing when you're grieving.
0: Oh yeah. I could totally um, totally see that.
1: So, you know, we had doctors appointments, we had plan, <laughs> we had intimacy again. We we had something to look forward to, although it was very scary too. Right? I had been blessed Um, with being able to get pregnant very easily, I had no problems with any of my prior pregnancies. And because I have my age and uh, I suppose my husband's age too, um, you know, it took us quite a while. It took us almost a year to get pregnant. Mm -hmm. Um, and we were determined that basically like if it were in the cards for us to have, have another baby, we were going to do it without going through a lot of um, medical intervention. Right, we weren't going to go through IVF. I wasn't going to shoot myself with hormones and make it right. even crazier <laughs> than I was already feeling.
0: So, right, right, right. And yeah. so, you know, I know you've done some very interesting things. Uh, I'm partially motivated or fully motivated, I'm sure, by the experience you had with Jackson. Uh, but let me ask you a question: At what point did you stop being uh, an attorney? When did you sure. make that decision?
1: So I actually took some time off of work when, after I had Jackson, I was out on maternity leave for about eight months and my husband and I together decided it's best thing for our family if I stayed home for a while. We had two kids under the age of two, basically. And my husband was had a very busy, hectic job. He was a new partner in his law firm. And since I was working for the federal government in a job I loved, but was making less than ten percent of what he made, it made sense <laughs> for me to be the one to sit back. Right. Um, then we had a third child three years later.
0: It made even and... more sense to not go back.
1: <laughs> Correct. And because I'm a very controlling type A person, I I like I wanted to be in very much in control of my family and the way that my children were raised, and it worked for a while. I was intending to go back to work and i think that that decision was definitely affected by jackson's illness and losing him and really changed my view of my life and how i wanted to spend my time
0: so so talk to us a little bit about how you wanted to spend your time differently after that event
1: well i had already delayed going back to work and i could definitely see the value in being home and being present for my family and you know, I'm. I should just preface this all by saying this is just what worked for me and my family and my situation. I, I make every single woman and couple make their own decisions on what works best for them personally and for their family. And there's no judgment intended, right? Of course. But for us, it was very much was working. I think it made my husband's life a lot easier that he could just really focus on work. Um, but I I really after Jackson got sick and after we lost him and after we got out of our haze of grief and we were trying to get pregnant, I just at some point during that process, and I can't give you a definite time frame, I just realized that I wanted to give back more to my family and my community and to spend my time doing things that really mattered to me because you know what? Life is short and mm-hmm. if what happened to Jackson could happen, I mean, you just never know.
0: If it can happen to an eight and a half year old, it can happen to a forty-five year old.
1: It can happen to anyone. Right. And while I loved my job and I was definitely doing something, I think, that was of value to my community by being a prosecutor and working for the government, I just realized that there were so many places and organizations that had were meaningful in my life that could use my time and my skill.
0: So talk to us then about grief Haven.
1: Okay. So one of those organizations is a foundation and it's called grief Haven and grief Haven was founded by a woman named Susan Whitmore. And she lost her only adult daughter to a really rare form of sinus cancer. Mm -hmm. And in the haze of her grief, she was looking for resources that could help her and really couldn't find what she needed and decided to devote her energy and the rest of her life towards creating an organization that would help families grieving the loss of a child. And I first learned of Grief Haven through our rabbi at our synagogue, who had been with us through the whole time of Jackson's illness and death and after. And we were very connected to our synagogue community as well. Rabbi Rubin introduced me to Susan, and although we had not reached out and found um, any sort of grief support at that point, when she she said, "When you're ready, we have a grief support group for you." And she followed up, and she said, "I have one spot left in a group," and we didn't know if we were ready, but we just took a, a leap of faith, so to speak, and made a conscious decision to try it. And we met. Eight other families that were grieving losses of their children, and that really helped our healing. And
0: so that—that that, that, I'm enough. sorry, I'm sorry to interrupt you. I apologize, Beth. I wanted to ask a question. Right uh, when you were saying that about that, it helped you. It helped you in your healing. Did it also keep the wound open, or <laughs> was it more about healing?
1: Yeah, it's both, right? Uh, it was both. The only way I can describe it is, we met as a group every every other week, and we dreaded going to that group, and we loved going to that group Mm -hmm. exactly for the reasons that you were saying. It was raw and it was emotional, and it made you feel like crap, and it made
0: you feel great. But it was, (laughs) but it was necessary.
1: It was absolutely necessary. Yeah.
0: Well, so this feels like a good time to read you the quote that I selected for you. So I'm curious about your how this lands on you, you were unsure which pain is worse: the shock of what happened or the ache of what never will. Right. Yep. That
1: that quote definitely speaks to me. Well chosen. Um, the shock of what happened. You know, like, look, this is the Clear Choices podcast, right? And it's a choice. It's a choice you make. You can focus on what happened and trying to wrap your head around that, okay? Or you can choose to focus on the ache of what will never be, what will never be my son's life and what will never be my ability to parent that child. And you have to make a choice. And I I guess do some armchair therapy here, but I think if you get stuck in focusing on the why, why? Why did this happen to me? Why did this happen to my kid? Why is there cancer? Questions that really can't be answered. Mm -hmm. You can get really stuck in life.
0: Yeah. Let me, let me say something about that. I, um, have you ever heard of NLP, neuro-linguistic programming?
1: No, I I think I may have, but I don't know enough about it to say yes. So I'm going to say no.
0: (laughs) it's, It's essentially a, um, you know, a technique for influencing people and yourself by using the right words, words that have power as a word, as opposed to words that are disempowering. And when you said you said something really poignant, you said it wasn't the right choice essentially to focus on the why because that it's, can't be answered. And in NLP, they talk about the, the word why being a very weak word. It's a victim word, right? And I'm not saying you're a victim. It'd be understandable oh. that you would ask the word why for the rest of your life. I totally get it. But it's interesting to think about it in this context is like, you know, why questions are, oh, why me? You know, why did this happen? You know, it's, it's victim as opposed to what can I do? How can I make this better? Those are more powerful, empowering words. So I just wanted to kind of throw that in because it was really, it really spoke to me as you said that.
1: Oh, I mean, so I never really heard of NLP or the power of those words, but I've always believed that without knowing it was a thing, right? Right. Um, yeah, I'm not a big why person. And when my kids get stuck on the why, I try to move them past that too. It's just always been my natural parenting instinct.
0: Yeah. And in my, in my leadership role in, in the business world, when people always come to me and they throw a problem at me, I would always say, okay, so don't tell me what we can't do. Tell me how we're going to fix this. You know, don't tell me all the reasons this is a problem. Tell me what our options are. Right? You know, I don't want to hear. Okay, I get it. There's a wall of problems. Get it. So, wh- how do we get over the wall?
1: Right. And then you get stuck on the problem itself and you go nowhere. But your quote, you know, just to go back to your quote for a minute, yeah. I mean, focusing on the ache of what will never be, that's, that's the path that leads you forward. Because, because if I wanna why? Honor, well, because if I want to honor my, my child's life, and my role as his parent or just my role in a society where these things can happen, then that, that makes me feel more motivated, right?
0: So that, that ache is fuel. Correct. You choose to use the pain as fuel.
1: Right. That I can volunteer my time for an organization that helps other families like me, other parents. I can, you know, rally my family and my community to raise money for the pediatric cancer research foundation to honor my child's life.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, as you, as you may know, uh, Beth, I think when we prepped for this, uh, uh, interview, uh, I told you that the impetus for me doing this show was my parents having survived the Holocaust. And, and certainly not every episode is going to be about the Holocaust by any stretch of the imagination, but you know, it, it, it strikes me that like, this is not to compare levels of pain. There is no comparison. It's not like, you know, one thing is worse than another when someone goes through a horrible tragedy. But, but when I think about my parents and what they went through and how much family they lost and how much suffering they saw, and then to come here to this country and kind of use that as fuel to, to go back to our previous conversation to use that as fuel to create this amazing legacy it seems to me you're kind of just doing the exact same thing
1: i think on a much smaller scale but i like to i hope that that's what i'm doing you know i hope that i'm setting up a model for my children and for those around me where they can say that i made the best of possibly the worst situation a parent can ever face
0: yeah right so, talk to us. Uh, besides um, the great work you're doing with Grief Haven, you're also doing some cool stuff with something about the basketball.
1: <laughs> well, so when my son Zach, who is now 21 years old, was getting ready for his bar mitzvah, you know, it's a tradition in our synagogue and most synagogues to do some sort of sadaka or mitzvah project around your bar mitzvah, some sort of giving back. And he really wanted to do something to help kids like Jackson. And he on his own, I did help him find the phone number and the email address, contacted one of Jackson's doctors. And he said, Look, I want I want to help kids like Jackson. What what organization mm-hmm. should I raise money for or volunteer for? And and we came up with two ideas. One was in fifth grade, my boys Went to a progressive private school, so they like they learned to knit, <laughs> wow. and we. The, I helped Zach coordinate the entire fifth grade at his school. It was like 55, 60 kids to knit little blankies and beanies for um, kids undergoing chemotherapy.
0: And oh, nice! Yes,
1: it was. It, w- it was quite a sight watching all these fifth graders caring jocks in their, you know, um, in their jerseys and everybody carrying around their little knitting needles and bags for a few months. It was really, it was a great project. So that was one little thing we did, but with a big impact, right? And, and then the other thing that Zach learned about was an organization called the Pediatric Cancer Research Foundation. And it is a, there are very few organizations that focus only on pediatric cancer. And pediatric cancer is different from adult cancer and the treatments need to be different. I mean, that's the reason we lost Jackson was because he had an adult treatment thrown on his eight-year-old body Mm -hmm. and his body couldn't handle the toxicity that Mm -hmm. was necessary to fight the cancer. Mm -hmm. Plus, the effect of those types of chemicals in growing bodies and brains leaves... Um, survivors of child pediatric cancer with a whole host of developmental problems and a high risk of developing a secondary adult cancer.
0: So we Um, almost a no win situation.
1: It is really a no win situation. So we really, Zachary, sorry to get back to the question, Zachary learned about this organization and it has, it's really well run and 80% 80% of the funds they raise go directly into pediatric cancer research.
0: And that's called?
1: It, the organization's pediatric cancer research foundation, uh, the PCR, PCR. I, sorry. So they do an event. of you're you're getting to my basketball events. Um, yeah. Jackson and Zachary both play basketball, love basketball. We're huge Laker fans. And they have an event that aligned with this basketball and cancer research. research interest funny enough it's called dribble for the cure and every year ucla hosts this event and the men's and women's basketball teams and also the other athletic teams there are there to support it and they basically have a little dribble around the ucla campus and they end it in um at the poly pavilion i think you've been there yes with us one year i have
0: i have and And clear choices will donate this year
1: Thank you. We really appreciate it.
0: My pleasure.
1: Um, and basically, you know, all the money raised goes to the PCRF, and it's sponsored by UCLA and the basketball teams. And our family and our supportive community, including <laughs> yourself, over the last nine years has raised almost two hundred thousand dollars.
0: Wow, that's a difference maker.
1: Yeah, it really is, and and it's
0: healing. Like- it's got to feel good to your kids.
1: That is what is so great. It's not only great for the organization, but it's actually something my kids can do. When Zach graduated high school and left for college, my daughter, Sarah, and my nephew, Eli, who are the same age, and they are now 16 years old, they have been running the event. And Mm -hmm. when they go to college, I think my nephew, Noah, will run the event. And then when Noah goes to college, my son, Judah, will run the event. And at some point I it'll fall back into my lap and I will be, I will happily do it. That's, Uh,
0: that's so powerful. So, so let me um, kind of switch gears a tiny bit. When you look at all these choices that you've made from how you elected to grieve to having another child, to not working and being involved with all these amazing organizations, going back to your, you know, three, now three surviving children, how would you say they made choices around dealing with this? And how did you support that or help that or facilitate (laughs) that?
1: That was, you know, helping our children after they lost their brother was not easy for many reasons. One, we were grieving and didn't see a lot of hope for ourselves. the beginning Mm -hmm. um two they were different ages and so different right they were 10 and five different
0: different coping skills
1: and different kids they have such different personalities right um it's just it was it was hard we didn't even know how to help ourselves our grief support group helped us a lot because we talked about a lot of the parents had other children and we talked about the things that they could do um that we did and the things that worked and didn't work but I will say this, because we had other children that we needed to help and they were our top priority, that was something else that really helped us move forward after the loss. We couldn't, we didn't have the option to just bury ourselves in our bed and not get up, right?
0: Right. Yeah.
1: Our children needed to eat. They needed to go to school. They needed functional parents. And I wasn't going to let them down. I really wasn't going to ruin their lives because we felt our lives had been ruined. Zach really wanted, he was the 10 year old and Jackson died over the summer, started fifth grade, you know, a month later. And Sarah started kindergarten at the same time. Um, They, Zach really wanted to do things to remember his brother and to make a difference. So that's where the knitting project came up. And that is how his involvement with the PCRF came into play. So he guided us in a way. Mm, He's a very... He's, he, had a, he had a very clear vision of things in, for that he wanted in his life. The other piece of it was our school really supported our children. And they have an, a fundraising event every year that's very child-run and driven. And it's called the Jogathon. And they dedicated that Jogathon to Jackson. And everybody wore purple and yellow, the Lakers mm-hmm. colors, in his honor. And there was um, And it was really great. And that really helped my kids a lot. And I will be forever grateful to our school for, for everything that they did for us as well, which I also donated a significant amount of my time to my
0: kids. So you're, you're, You might not be a practicing lawyer, but you're as busy as one.
1: <laughs> Busier sometimes, but that's okay. So, you know, I don't know if that answers your question, but having this, this family philanthropy project, um, that we could all work on together at whatever level we were at it was very helpful for us moving forward. And having the baby, right? The end of the story was yes, we were able to get pregnant. We were able to have this beautiful baby boy. We named Judah after his brother. And while my kids thought we were absolutely insane when we told them we were
0: pregnant,
1: um, they, you know, there was the typical fears, right? My my ten, my then ten year old thought we were trying to replace his brother. Or I guess he was eleven.
0: Sure, normal, and, normal response know, for sure.
1: And was probably mortified because at that point in his life, no, knew how people get pregnant, right? Right. <laughs> um, he. That's um, a whole other episode. That's right a whole other
0: podcast.
1: <laughs> but you know, once we had him, there was this light that went back on for our family. Wow. I just, I can't explain it.
0: No, um, you, you just did. I totally get that. So, so let me ask you a question. Um, you know, we didn't, this was, you know, extremely powerful and, and, and more than I would have hoped for when I, when I approached you about doing this. But when you look at your, you know, your husband who had to go, who not had to, who, you know, went, who stayed at work throughout all this, and you chose to be more of a full-time mom and your kids had to cope with everything we've just discussed. And you got involved with all these organizations. Um, I guess I would just kind of ask throughout all that, you know, what did you learn about yourself, about your family? What things do you want to leave the audience with about, you know, here's what we learned and here, here's where I would direct people around their choices when they're going through whatever it is that's difficult for them?
1: Okay. Big question.
0: Big, a question. big question. Big
1: <laughs> question. I think I can answer it. I would tell everyone. You are so much stronger than you think you are. Mm. Um, I bristle when people say, "I don't know how you do it. I could never have done it." Because I feel like there's an implication that the norm should be you just crawl into your hole and never come out again, right? Right. You should be that upset and that and and that have that level of grief that it would stop you from living your life. And I say no. I say no to that. <sighs> I think that learning that you are strong people are strong and you can learn to live with your loss it becomes part of you it is your new normal and while yes sometimes that loss will leave you floored and and not very functional most of the time that loss can fuel you and lead you to lead you on the path where you want to go mm. my and my second i think less <laughs> Less powerful point would be, I think you have to trust your gut sometimes Mm -hmm. and not every decision that you make in life is going to have a full rational, an analytical basis behind it, right? Like, I just go back to that moment where we decided to try to have a baby. It was pretty crazy for us to think about doing that, right? Sure. For so many reasons but it was the right decision.
0: You know, you know, what's interesting about what you're saying is that, um, you know, if if you listen to the very first episode of this that I did, I talk about the 35,000 choices that people have to make on a daily basis. You know, whether I'm going to wear khakis or jeans or what Mm -hmm. freeway I'm taking and then the more difficult choices. And, uh, and, And so often in all these interviews I've been doing with interesting people, a lot of it is just kind of, you have to go with your gut. And, and the thing that I always um, think of to myself when I hear someone like you say that is, and you know, if you go with your gut, the worst thing that happens is it wasn't the right choice. And you then make a new, cho- like, you know, it's, yeah, it's, it's usually not an end. It's usually just a, okay, that fork, there's another fork coming up in the road. So I just have to take a different fork now. And this Still serves some purpose, even if it's. And I'm going to use air quotes that nobody can see. Uh, you know, the the wrong choice. You know, it still informs us and gives us knowledge and wisdom and experience that leads us to that next thing. Do you agree with that?
1: Oh, a hundred percent. I mean, because I think that I think that if you just think about what we've talked about, it's the getting stuck and not being able to make a choice that is really what holds people back
0: in life. That is powerful. Yeah. That's, it's simple and true and super powerful because and, people yeah. get stuck in, you're, you're so right, they get paralyzed.
1: Correct. And sometimes you just have to go for it. And I know that any bad choice I've made in my life led to the best choice in my life, right? Even just with with in my marriage and, and who I decided to spend the rest of my life with. I look back at my prior relationships and the decisions I made and I realized that I don't think I would have gotten to the place I was to, to choose to marry my husband. If I hadn't had that prior those prior experiences, Those other
0: experiences yeah, yeah, to make you ready for what that relationship would bring. Absolutely. So agree with you a hundred percent. Well, Beth, I cannot thank you enough. This was really powerful and really honest. And I appreciate your authenticity and your willingness to share. I mean, again, not to put words in your mouth, but I I can only imagine it's, it's never easy uh, to talk about it. Um, But I really appreciate you doing so. And I would like to ask you to actually send me any link you want to send me that you would like me to post on the website and connect to your broadcast of this. So uh, whether it's the dribble or the, and any of the other organizations uh, that you're involved with, you know, we'd love to support here at clear choices and get it out there to our listeners.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoy talking with
0: you. All right, you too. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining us. If you've been inspired and motivated by what you heard today, please subscribe to the show so you don't miss an episode. Post it on social media, invite friends, and let me know if you have any potential guests. While you're there, leave us a review. We'd love to connect with you as well, so check out our Facebook page by searching Clear Choices. I'm available for speaking engagements. And you can find more information by visiting our website at clearchoices.live. And all this can be found in our show notes. Join us next week for more inspiring stories that can help us all make clear choices. Thanks for listening.